I would selfishly tell you that one of the greatest investments this church ever made was in hiring your first youth minister, a guy by the name of Jeff Van E. Because, and then not just hiring him, but Jeff ended up living next door to me in the trailer that my dad, my mom and dad owned. Uh, and, and that was an amazing investment that you made in me, in bringing someone like that into my life. Jeff was my first real day in and day out encounter with a Christian, and I was in junior high at the time. Now, Jeff didn't just live in the trailer next door. Jeff ended up eating at our house a lot and coming over and watching TV and eating in our house some more. The more I think about it, the more I think that my dad may have actually made an investment in this church by, and my mom by feeding him uh, and by keeping him well-fed. We, we kind of made an investment in the church ourselves. But, but Jeff was one of those first relationships I ever had with someone who was uh, not just a, a Christian who attended church, but was this definite p- professing uh, man of faith. And I distinctly remember one night Jeff was over and we were watching a movie, and, and one of the characters on the show said a bad word. And uh, said it, they said, okay, that's, that's what they said. And, and I remember watching Jeff, he cringed when that person used a, a bad word. And, and I noticed, at 11 years old, I noticed that this guy cringed at a word that, to be quite honest, I had heard every day. <laughs> I mean, every adult I knew used those words. Not my mom, obviously. But, see, Mom, I covered for you. They'll never know. But every other adult I knew used those words. And at 11 years old, I had noticed that his language was different than everybody else's. And at 11 years old, I asked him the question, you don't use those words, do you? I said, why, why, don't, you, why don't you talk like everyone else? And he said, I don't need to. I, I don't want to. That made an impression on me. And, and it was my first realization that Christians might be different from me and from other people that I knew. And if they could be different in that way, then what other differences might there be? Now, I was sharing that story a couple of weeks ago with a friend of mine as we were talking about preachers these days. And there is this growing trend among preachers to use more coarse language, sometimes even from the pulpit. I mean, nothing that would make a sailor blush, but words that when we were growing up, we were taught that you don't use those in polite society, and you definitely, when you go to church, definitely pretend that you never use those words. (laughs) And yet the, the, the idea with modern younger preachers is that you need to be authentic people need to see that you're authentic that you're a real person in a real world and that you use real language just like everybody else listen to the way i talk look at the things i do i'm just like you yeah i'm a christian yeah i believe in jesus but i'm just like you and i said you know 
If you had tried that with 11-year-old Brett Hammond, you would have lost it. Because I needed to see that you were different. I needed to see that there was something different about your life, and that had to begin somewhere. And for me, it began with the words that people used. If you can't show me by your lifestyle that there's something different, then what do you have that would be worth having? That's what Peter was trying to get across to the believers that he wrote to. He called them exiles. And the first thing that that tells us by calling them exiles is that they didn't belong to the world in, in which they lived. Their, their accents were probably different. Their clothing, the way they dressed was probably different. Their culture was different. The way they lived told people, you're not one of us. And Peter's call for them is not to blend in. His call isn't blend in, pretend to be just like everybody else. His call to them is to stand apart and to thrive in their faith. And what Peter goes on to show us here in chapter 2 is that thriving faith impacts the people around us. What Peter shows us isn't just that we, isn't just about thriving for ourselves. It's not just about me. Rather, what he shows us is the way we live out our faith can challenge the opinions of others. It challenges their opinions about, about who we are, about what we believe. It challenges their opinions about God. We're going to start in, there in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11-17. through 17. I want to start with just verses 11 and 12. Again, page 1015 in those Bibles. Peter says in verse 11, Brothers, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The Christians of Peter's day were misunderstood by the world around them. This whole Christianity thing, this was new. It was brand new. And so people were very confused about what Christianity was all about. What do these people believe and what do they do? And they made up all sorts of stories about Christians and what Christians do when they get together. There were some people that thought that Christians were cannibals. Did you know that? They thought we were cannibals. You know why? Because they heard that we eat flesh and drink blood. And so they came up with all of these stories that when you joined the church, that they would indoctrinate you by making you eat flesh and drink blood, and then you were one of them, and they had got you, know, they got you that way. Christians refused to call Caesar Lord. Instead, they referred to Jesus as Lord, and so they were thought to be revolutionaries. They were thought to be political rebels and revolutionaries. Christians refused to go to the festivals and the feasts to the pagan gods, and they refused to celebrate those. So people thought that they were atheists because they didn't participate in those things and Peter's advice isn't be just like them Peter's advice isn't join the crowd try to look the part try to look like everybody else and blend in rather his advice is let your morals and let your conduct define who you are he says in verse 11 abstain from the passions of the flesh now we've heard that before We've seen that several times. We understand the call to holiness. We understand that we are not to be given into sin, that we are not to live by the flesh. But Peter here 
isn't saying abstain so that you can go to heaven. Abstain because you're not supposed to do those things. He ties Christian morality directly to our Christian witness because people are watching. He says in verse 12, he says in 11, abstain from the passions of the flesh. And then in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is the people who are outside, honorable so that when they speak against you as an evildoer, as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Those words sound familiar to us. I, I, think, I, know where, I think I know where Peter got that. Do you remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16? He says, you, you are the light of the world. The city sit on a hillside, it can't be hidden. And people don't light a lamp and then hide it under a basket, but they, they put it on a stand so it gives light to the whole house. And he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they might see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Our behavior impacts the lives of those around us. It impacts the choices that they make. It impacts the things that they believe about us. And ultimately, it should impact their eternity. It challenges their opinions. Peter says, though they accuse you of doing wrong. Though they accuse you of doing wrong. Do they accuse us of doing wrong? You know, people, people out there are watching. And they are just waiting for Christians to screw up. They are just waiting for us to screw up. They are waiting for us to prove that we're fake, that we're phony. How many people out there right now are reading everything they can and posting everything they can to show you just how fake and phony that Duggar family is? You know, I don't know anything about what's going on with the Duggars. I mean, just, just the few things I hear. But how many people are loving the finally, you know, Christians have screwed up and finally, look, they're no better than anyone else? How many people sit and wait every day just, just waiting for any, any little bit of news about the Robertson family? that maybe they've screwed up. Maybe they're doing something wrong. And they, they make up all sorts of things. They say all sorts of things about it. People are watching. People are, are paying attention. And no, we're, we're not perfect. Yeah, we, we mess up. We, we mess up royally sometimes. But the world should see that something is different. I am very mindful of the fact that for a lot of my friends, I am the only preacher they know. I'm very mindful of that, that, that for a lot of my friends, I am the only preacher they know. And, and that is a huge responsibility for me to both live authentically, as authentically as I can, and to live as rightly as I can. Not so that they will think more of me. I mean, they are my friends. That ship has sailed. They're not going to think any more of me than they already do but so that by some means they might glorify God, that they might see something in my life that's real and that's worth having. I love it when I get the comment from my friends. I didn't know preachers could be so much fun. <laughs> but I love it even better when I get the phone calls. You got a minute? Can we talk? Can I tell you about what I'm going through? There's a very good chance that there are people in your life for whom maybe you're not the only Christian they know, but you're one of the few regular church attenders that they know. Do they see something in you that's worth having? Do they see something that's worth their time? Do they see something that eventually would lead them 
to glorifying God. Peter says our behavior, the way we thrive in our faith, it can change the opinions of other people about who we are, about what we stand for. Peter says also that our, be- our behavior can silence the critics of our faith. It can silence the critics of our faith. This is what Peter's talking about in verses 13 through 15. And I really feel like if we're going to look at verses 13 through 15, we really have to start at verse 15. In verse 15, he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That should catch our attention because Peter says this is the will of God. And we ought to be very concerned when we see something that says this is the will of God. You know, Jesus, little Jesus in the temple, they said, what are you doing here? He said, I had to be about my father's will. I had to be about my father's work. I had to be about his will. Later, Jesus, his family comes to to take him away because they think something's wrong with him. And he says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers and my sisters? The ones who do the will of my father. They are my brothers. They are my sisters. They are my mother. Paul, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. In other words, just like Peter, don't be like everybody else. Don't try to conform to the world around you, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. So if Peter says, this is the will of God, then we need to do it. The only problem is, we don't want to. (laughs) We really, we really don't want to. Look at verses 13 and 14. Be subject to the Lord, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Can I just say president there? Or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. There's a call, there's a call to consistency here. Remember back in verse 12, he's warned us that people speak against us as evildoers, that they will speak against us as evildoers. If they see us living in rebellion, if they see us living in rebellion to king and court, then we're proving them right. We're proving to them that we are evildoers. So shouldn't our conduct, shouldn't the way that we carry ourselves in society indicate that we have a respect for society, that we respect others, that we respect the law, that we respect those that God has placed in authority, and we trust Him that he placed them there according to his will for his reasons. It should. Until it shouldn't. It should until it shouldn't. And, you know, the the real problem with Peter's words in those two verses, you know what the real problem with Peter's words are? It's Peter. The real problem with Peter's words is, is Peter's example. He says there in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You know, if you turn back to Acts and looked at Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, Peter and John are on trial before the court, and it says, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak 
of what we have seen and heard. And then one chapter on over in chapter 5, beginning there in verse, uh, in verse 27, it says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. And I think the call here again is to consistency. Can we obey God and government at the same time? Can we obey God and man at the same time? If we can't, then consistency says we have to obey God. If we can't, then consistency says we have to hold to the truth that we've been given. We have to obey God. We have to show that there is a standard, and no matter what it costs us, financially, socially, whatever other way, we are going to hold to that standard. Peter says this is the will of God. And he says that by doing the will of God, that by doing it, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There are a lot of different kinds of foolish people in the Bible. Just like there's all kinds of different foolish people in our world. When you read that word fool in the Bible, it can mean one thing in one place and another thing in another. You know, the Psalms say that the, the fool says in his heart there is no God. There's all different kinds of fools out there. This particular kind of fool you could define as an obstinate sinner. That's what this kind of fool is. This particular kind of fool is an obstinate sinner. They are people who refuse to change. They are people who refuse to listen. They, they don't want to be told that they are wrong. They don't want to be told that the things they are doing are, is, are wrong. They definitely don't want to hear the word sin associated with the things that they are doing. If you, got any, if, if you can think of any names right now, just go ahead and yell them out. Don't do that. Don't do that. By definition of the word obstinate, some of you are very familiar with the word obstinate, looking at the teachers. Some of you, know, by definition of the word obstinate, they can't be argued with, right? They can't be reasoned with. They are simply not going to listen. They won't listen to us, but they will watch us. They will watch us, and by our conduct, by the standard that we consistently live by, Peter says we can shut them up. We can shut up their arguments. If they see we're really living this life, that will silence their criticism. And Peter says when we do that, then our lives can provide hope for the hopeless. Verse 16, he says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. It's to be understood that if we are living as free people, then there are other people in this world who are not free, right? If we are to live as free people, then there are some people in our world who are not free. And since Peter is addressing his audience as sojourners, as, as exiles, as, as resident aliens, you might say, Obviously, we're not talking about political freedom. From verse 13, he says, be subject to the authorities. So we're not talking about freedom from government. We're not talking about freedom from rule. We're not talking about freedom from law or from taxes. 
The freedom he's talking about is freedom from sin, freedom from bondage to self. It's exactly what Jesus was proclaiming when Jesus spoke at the synagogue there in his hometown in Nazareth, and he, he began his proclamation of who he was, and he preached, quoting from Isaiah 61, verse 1, that he had come to proclaim liberty to the captives and an opening of prisons to those who are bound. Peter says, we don't do that. We don't proclaim freedom by using grace, by using the forgiveness of God as an excuse to sin. I mean, if you can believe this, this, this was only about 40 years after the crucifixion and resurrection. Only about 40 years after the birth of the church. And already, people were saying, do whatever you want, because Jesus is going to forgive you anyway. Already, they had picked up on that. They had started saying that 40 years in, and they're saying, you can do whatever you want because Jesus is always going to forgive you. You'll, you'll always be forgiven. So, so go out and sin. It doesn't matter. You've already been forgiven. You know, Paul addressed that misuse of grace in, in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, so what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? And he says, no, absolutely not. Don't do that. But when Peter addresses it, he's talking about the impact that our sin has on other people. Do you think anyone's impressed by your sin? Do you think anyone's impressed by your behavior? Do you think that they will believe your claim to be a Christian if they see you doing those things? And I think the real problem for us Christians is that, that we like to play, we like to play with sin. We like to play with it, you know? It, sin's like a little toy for us. And we like to play with it, and it's okay as long as we wash our hands when we're done. You know, as long as we clean up when we're done and say we're sorry, we can play with sin all we want. You know, we, we kind of feel like it's just a toy. Peter's addressing people who have no freedom. Peter's addressing people who are in bondage. And there is a world of people out there, and a lot of them in here, who, who are in bondage to sin, and, and they, they are trapped in sin, and they are addicted. And those people don't need to be told, it's no big deal. Just do what you want, and Jesus will forgive you afterwards. Stop worrying about it. They need to know there's a way out. They need to know that there's freedom. They need to know that there's an answer to the constant struggle and the constant guilt that they feel and the pain that they inflict not only on themselves, but on the people that they love. And if they never see that, in us, if they never see that in how we live, where are they going to see it? Peter wraps this all up with four commands in verse 17. Four commands that he states very succinctly, uh, very quick little commands, but they are commands. He says in verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, Honor the emperor. There's a lot of stuff in those four commands. I could have preached a sermon just on those four commands. Every one of those four commands, not about you getting your way. <laughs> Every one of them is not about you. It's about what other people are going to see. Are they going to see by your behavior that you 
fear God? Are they going to see that you fear God by how you live? That you're not taking advantage of His love, His promise to forgive, that you're not taking advantage of His grace? Are they going to see that you're truly pursuing holiness, that your life is different? Because if they don't see that, then why would they bother wanting to be a part of this? How about the way we treat each other here at church? Are they going to see that we love the brotherhood? Would someone see from the way Christians treat each other, from the way we care for each other, from the way we talk about each other, would they see and hear that it would be worth being a part of who we are? That it would be worth being a part of this? That they would be welcomed? That they would be cared for? What I love about these four commands is that he sandwiches those two. Fear God, love the brotherhood. He sandwiches those two with honor. He says, honor everyone. And then he says, honor the emperor. <clears throat> and implied in that is that we do not treat people unfairly. Honor everyone, honor the emperor. We don't treat people unfairly. We are not overly impressed with someone who has wealth, power, and position like the emperor. And we don't put down those who have nothing. We treat them all with honor. That word honor is important, by the way. The idea of honor, if I were to define honor for you, I would define it as the recognition of the value that each person has because they are created in the image of God. Can I repeat that one more time? Honor is the recognition of the value that each person has because they are created in the image of God. Aside from their sin, aside from their mistakes, aside from their choices, aside from their differences, we recognize because they are created in the image of God, they should be treated with respect. We should see that potential in them even if they don't. Honor everyone. That's his first one. Everyone. Honor everyone. That includes Bruce Jenner, by the way. I wasn't sure if I was going to do this today, but then I realized I hadn't been in trouble for a while. And Danny really likes phone calls. I want to share an article with you that I read this week. This is from a guy named Zach Locklear. The article is titled, Christians, be careful what you say on Facebook. It's a very short article. I printed it in very large print because my birthday is later this month. He says, while the Bruce Jenner controversy is at its peak, be very careful what you are tempted to say about it on social media. Though your gut reaction might be to post a comment or article that articulates your disgust, I beg you to reconsider. Here's a couple reasons why. Number one, many of you are either looking at porn or something close to it. I know this because some of the pages and videos that you like on Facebook show up on my news feed. You probably don't realize this because you keep doing it, and I keep seeing it. Ultimately, all sexual perversion is the result of human corruption. You have it, 
I have it too. But you might want to reconsider publicly shaming one perversion when you have another. Number two, related to reason number one, you don't understand the gospel. There's nothing wrong about outwardly expressing your disgust at sin. The problem is, many of you aren't really disgusted at sin. You're disgusted by homosexuals, transgendered people, and so on. This leads you to posting hateful diatribe towards these people for reasons that often have nothing to do with Christian beliefs. The result is, we're called bigots and hypocrites. And we are. We cherry-pick sins and compare our lives to these individuals because it makes us feel a little less screwed up. We do this because we don't understand the gospel. There is a way to condemn sin. But many of us are doing it wrong because, again, we don't understand the gospel. Please remember that Christ died for us when we are at our absolute ugliest state. And then he quotes Tim Keller's definition of the gospel, which I love. The gospel is this. We are more sinfully, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. If we really understood this, we would be more careful about what we say. And number three, many of you aren't praying for people like Bruce Jenner. If we are not praying, we probably do not care. If we do not care, then we do not love. And if we do not love, then we're in direct opposition to God. In fact, we may not even love God, according to 1 John 4.20. Please, instead of placing these people further away, pray that God would draw them close to Himself. In fact, pray that for all, pray that for all of us. And if you're finding it impossible in your heart to love someone like Bruce Jenner, pray that God would make that happen. And I'd just add one other thing from 1 Peter chapter 2, that last verse. Honor everyone. Honor everyone. People pay attention. People read what you post. People listen to what you say. And if they don't see you treating other people's problems, if they don't see you treating other people's sin seriously, then why would they trust us with theirs? If they don't see us taking the eternal condition of someone like Bruce Jenner seriously, why would they ever trust us and believe that we would care for them and their eternal condition? And that's a tough call. I'm not going to lie to you. There is nothing easy about that. And it gets tougher every day as society slides further and further away from the morality that we hold to. It, it, it gets easy to forget that people have value, especially when they flaunt their sin and when they accuse us of being narrow-minded or being judgmental or being bigoted. Peter's call in verse 12 Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among those who are outside the church, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, let Christ 
be seen through the way we treat them. Wouldn't it be great if introducing people to Christ was as simple as the way we treated them? Wouldn't it be great if, if introducing to people to Christ was as simple as introducing them to each other? Introducing them to us? Introducing them to, to the way that we love, the way that we care for each other? Wouldn't it be great if we could let Christ shine through the way that we shine our lives in other people? That's what Jesus was calling us to when he called us to let our light shine before others so they might see your good deeds. Praise your Father in heaven. That's thriving faith. That's what we're called to do. We're going to come to the table here in just a moment. We're going to encounter Christ. And we're going to encounter him together. We're going to encounter him with flawed people, with sinful people, with people who have done horrible things, with people who have come to understand the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. Wouldn't it be great if somebody in our lives was trapped, imprisoned by their sin, could come and know that love also? Wouldn't it be great if we could let Christ's love shine through us? Let's pledge our lives to that as we stand together.